Jim had a passion for God. He loved God, really did love him. And he had a love for people, and he had a real burden uh, to communicate the truths of the Christian gospel to people around him. But he wrestled with the question of how on earth should he do that? How could he bring the message of Jesus to a bunch of people who really seemed so far from him? How could he help people see and embrace the truth when they had so little understanding? They didn't understand the Bible or anything like that. The barriers just seemed insurmountable. The task, virtually impossible. But even though with all of those obstacles in front of him, Jim knew that he had to try. God had given him a vision to make a difference in the lives of men and women. For starters, he decided the best thing to do was shave his head right down to the skin. Except for one little patch of hair that he eventually let grow until it was quite long. Not only that, he began wearing it in a pigtail and then dyed it in a different... Well, this would be brilliant. This would be a great look for you, I tell you. He started wearing it in a different colour so he could fit in with those he was trying to reach. He also gave up his suit and tie, began to dress like the people around him, changed his eating patterns, changed his diet. He, he worked hard to learn a new language, pick up the idioms and the phrases on the streets, all in the hope that he could get alongside people to be able to convey the message of Jesus. Jim didn't do all of that from a distance. He moved into the neighborhood with these people, tried to befriend them at the market stall. It wasn't easy. Their non-Christian lifestyles were very different from his. And, put bluntly, they outright rejected his message. Jim paid quite a price in terms of loneliness, weariness, and discouragement. He also suffered a lot of criticism from the church. He lived as well with the daily rejection of most of those that he was desperate to reach. But he carried on, year after year after year. Jim's life was a powerful illustration of evangelism against the odds. And today, generations later, countless people from the neighbourhoods in which he worked hard to reach have come to know Jesus and put their faith, their hope, and their confidence in him. So here's my question. Is it worth taking risks to reach lost people for Jesus? And how far would you personally go to reach somebody with the message of Jesus Christ? How far, indeed, would we as a church go to reach people in this community? with the message of Christ? Is it right to do it in such a way that sometimes you rub people up the wrong way? It, it doesn't quite fit in with our preconceptions? Push back a few boundaries, rush, ruffle a few feathers? If you're not sure, you might want to ask the hundreds of thousands of Chinese Christians who've been touched directly or indirectly by Jim. He's more widely known as James 
Hudson Taylor. The founder of China Inland Mission over a century ago. An incredible guy. Most of us sat here tonight, if you're a Christian, you will know that evangelism, telling people about Jesus, is really important. Telling other people about Jesus is meant to be the heartbeat of any good church, isn't it? Meant to be the heartbeat of this church. Problem is, as good Christian people, we, as Mark Mittelberg points out, succumb to the second law of spiritual dynamics. That is, as Christians, if left to our own devices, we actually move towards self-centeredness, not to reaching out. There's a gravitational pull inwards. And if you don't believe me, come with me on this little journey a moment. We want good sermons. We want instruction. We want to be equipped to do good things. We gather together to pray. We adore God. We care for each other. Look, we want better relationship with God and a blessed relationship with each other. And so the greatest amount of thought and time and energy in church life goes to what? Sundays. Sunday sermon preparation, because you lot are demanding a lot. Sunday worship. Hours spent, Bible study, home group material, collective prayer times, Sunday school work, youth work. What do those things tell you about where we're headed as a church? We need to be very, very careful. And in order to avoid such evangelistic entropy, we've got to be relentless in our pursuit of owning the mission we've been called to fulfill. Namely, reaching people out there with the good news of Jesus. People who right now are buying their bottle of Sauvignon Blanc to have a nice Sunday night at home in front of Call the Midwife before work starts tomorrow. People who are busy finishing off the homework with the kids. Haven't given second thought to the idea of being in church today. People who right now are in the service station at Maygore collecting their children who have been staying with their divorced husband. People in this community who are wondering where they can score next. People who will be waiting for food bank to open. People who will be waiting to get into their car at 6.15 tomorrow morning to make the commute to Birmingham. Because that's what they do. Every single day. According to George Barner, most churches have a very, very small number of people who have a real passion for reaching other people with Jesus. His conclusion is this. If a church doesn't have a passion for evangelism, then it's not truly a church. It's simply a group of people intrigued by religion. I love that. Flip me. Please tell me that's not what we've become and not what we're becoming. Please tell me it's not. Because I'll tell you now, I'm not intrigued by religion. I've been won over by the man Jesus. 
And he set me free, as I shared this morning. And I want other people to experience what I've had the privilege of experiencing for myself. I know evangelism isn't easy. In fact, for many of us, it's downright scary. Evangelism is at one and the same time one of the highest values in the church, and yet one of the least practiced. Studies show that most believers don't have many, if any, friendships with non-Christians. Think about it. How many non-Christians do you not just acquaint with, but actually have as friends? We talk a good game, but our actions so often speak louder than our words. Do we really care about lost people? Do we sincerely believe that knowing Jesus is the best way to live and the only way to die? This evening, I want to revisit the mission that we've been entrusted with. I wasn't sure where Pastor Tim was going this morning, but God has a funny way of doing things, doesn't he? Given the way that Pastor Tim shared with us this morning and given the way Viv has prayed tonight. So I think God's wanting to say something to us. Linda's going to come. She's going to read a wonderful passage for us from John's Gospel that's going to help us uh, look at this matter before us tonight. Thanks, Linda. The reading is from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Amen. Bless you, Linda. So there's the disciples huddled together in a room, Resurrection Sunday. It's been an eventful day, to say the least, for everybody. It's now evening. They're afraid. The door's locked. Because remember, there were huge rumors going around that uh, the Jewish leaders wanted to arrest and dispose of anybody who'd been associated with Jesus in whatever way. Remember Peter's reaction to being identified as one of Jesus' followers. Suddenly, without warning, there in the room, doors locked, fearful for their lives, Jesus comes, stands right in the middle of them, and the first words to come out of his gob are, peace be with you. Peace be with you. I don't imagine those were the words some of the disciples were expecting at that moment, do you? Because I don't know about you, I'm surprised really the passage doesn't tell us that Jesus turned around and said, and where the flipping heck were you? You left me. Peter, where were you? I'm surprised that there's no word of rebuke, no word of scorn. But there's nothing like that. He doesn't shame them. The first words out of his mouth mouth show one thing. He gets them. 
And he accepts them in that moment. Can, can you imagine the relief that must have flooded into their bellies at that moment? His disciples must have felt so unworthy. There he is, stood in front of them, and he says, peace. That's a, that's a thing just to miss, isn't it? We, we don't give it a second thought, but think about it. Let that sink in for a moment. Understand how gracious a thing that is for Jesus to say to these people right there. Disciples were petrified. It's interesting, isn't it? The text says that they were locked behind those doors for fear. It carries with it the idea of flight. Do you remember Pastor Tim talking this morning about this idea that in some situations we fight or flight? Our reaction. And, and this is the idea that at any moment they were getting ready to bolt. They were so alarmed and frightened, they just wanted to be out of the way. I contrast that with the word peace. It's very important in John's Gospel. You get these contrasts. They're terrified peace. It's dark. I am the light of the world. Again and again, John uses this duality. Very, very clever linguistic tool that he uses. I will do this series on John one day. But it's fascinating to see what he's wanting us to understand. Peace. Literally, shalom. Literally meaning, all good to you. Sometimes used with that sense of putting together that which is broken and shattered. I wonder if you've ever thought about this, but Jesus wants to extend peace to you and to me. It's a wonderful thing about Jesus, you know, he doesn't want to gloss over your past, whatever you've been up to, whatever skeletons there are in your cupboard, he's well aware of the mistakes we've made, and he comes and he says, shalom, peace. He knows we've scorned him and denied him and rejected him when we should have been speaking up for him, shalom, peace. When he sees you and me, that's what he does. It's about having peace with God. Whatever's gone on, whatever you're wrestling with, whatever you're covering up from your nearest and dearest. It means about having peace in difficult times, peace in relationships, peace with the past. Jesus comes and offers peace tonight to you, to me. Even if you feel you don't deserve it. What an amazing extension of his grace, eh? Because I don't deserve it. So here's the question. Why do we continue to cower in the corner when Jesus wants us to share that with other people? Why are we so concerned about this building and about this place and whether the sermon's any good? Oh, I know about grilled preacher. Why do those things consume so much of our time rather than the fact that I believe in a real heaven and in a real hell and that real people go to both places? Jesus knows 
the fear that keeps many of us from sharing the good news with others. But here's the thing. As his peace floods our lives and his proofs ground our faith, he opens doors so that we can go through them because he's got a job for us to do. And that job is to tell other people the good news. I'll never forget when I first passed my driving test. Remember back then when you passed yours? I arrived home and I said to my dad, I've done it. I've passed. He didn't do it at the time, but a few hours later, Catherine will identify this because I knew he did this with Jess, he threw the keys to his car in my direction. A Montego, Austin Montego. Remember that? Montego, we call it, but Montego sounds posher. Well, how's a car? Take it out, he said, by yourself. Wow. In that moment, he was saying something to me. He was saying, take the car. I trust you. You've passed the test. In many ways, here in John 20, from this passage that Linda read for us, I think Jesus is, is kind of doing the same thing for his followers. Notice in verse 21, he says, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, well, now that I'm sending you. Here's the keys. Go on. Off you go. And it's the fact that Jesus accepts the disciples where they're at. And he entrusts them in that moment with the message of the gospel. He believes in them, and so he commissions them. You notice that the first use of the word peace in verse 19 was given in order to quieten their hearts. They were terrified, we were told. The second piece here in verse 21 was given, why? To prepare them for a fresh statement of their purpose. Initially given, interestingly enough, back in John 17, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them. I love uh, that passage in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, part of that served as the motto for the college where I trained for ministry. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 18 through 20, Paul states the mission of the church. He says, look, he's committed to us the message of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Notice that? Not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us that message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, huper Christu presbyomen in the Greek, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. You are an ambassador. You think Ferrero Rocher is a good ambassadorial moment. You like Ferrero Rocher, don't you? I know Sylvia loves a Ferrero Rocher. The ambassador is there and the golden chocolates are out. Hey, you've got a much better thing than golden chocolates to give out. We've got the message of the gospel. We are ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. And you notice, Jesus sends us into the world exactly the same way that the Father sent him. Now that's huge. That means lots of different things. It means we've got to take the initiative. 
Jesus went into the world. He emptied himself of all the glory and majesty of heaven. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 2, doesn't he? And we as well need to get out there. Not just sit back and fatten ourselves up and sort of wait for others to come. That's the attitude in lots of churches. If we just open the doors and put on good services and have good preaching, they'll flock in. Well, where are they? Not coming. We have to take the initiative. We've got to open our gobs. You know the word gob, don't you? We've got to speak up. I, I want to challenge you, seriously. Talk to two people this week about Jesus. There's a challenge for you. If you want to report back to me, report back to me. All right? I'm not secretly, maybe I will, secretly film all of you now who are here, and I'll have a record, and I'll be able to ask you next week if you did it. We've got to take the initiative. We've got to speak up. We've got to declare and demonstrate. Jesus demonstrated the validity of his message by what he did. We need to. We've got to be prepared for some opposition. Shouldn't surprise us when others laugh at us or ridicule us because of our message or our approach to life. The fact maybe we don't join in with certain things. Fine, bring it on. Bring it on because I have shalom. I have peace. Peace with God. Peace in my relationships. Peace about my past. Peace. I've been accepted by Jesus. But we've been accepted not just so we can bask in our relationship with him, but so we can live it out. We've been commissioned to a task. Are you feeling a little overwhelmed by all of this? Are you thinking, oh my gosh, he's told me I've got to talk to two people about Jesus. How the flip am I going to do that? Well, that's why these next verses in this passage are so important. Look at verse 22. With that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Jesus not only entrusts us with the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel to others, he equips us for the job. Brilliant. At this point in John's gospel, there is a moment of tremendous need, and Jesus recognizes that and places his spirit in each of his disciples individually. The Holy Spirit's wonderful, isn't he? You do know him, don't you? You do know the reality of his work in your life. I hope and pray you do, because he's wonderful. He, he gives us the words to say. He, he convicts us and our listeners of, of sin. He converts a hard heart. He sustains us in difficult times. He gives focus and substance to our prayers. He gives us the abilities to do what he's called us to do, and he gives us Christ-like qualities. Hallelujah. I'm not struggling to do this by myself. When the Holy Spirit is given room to work, he'll surprise us again and again and again and again by what he can do. We're not left alone. Jesus has given us everything we need. Come on. Come on. Let's go. Let's tell people about Jesus. 
There's a true story told about Padawesky. Have you heard of him? From Newport. He was a Polish pianist and uh, very, very famous. Uh, Jane models herself on some of his techniques. And uh, Padawesky uh, was playing, and uh, yeah, her mother took her little boy to hear him play. And they were seated, and uh, typical, isn't it, you know? Mother spotted somebody further down and thought, oh, stay here now. I'm going to go and just stay here. I'm going to go and see my friend. Off. Was seizing the opportunity to explore the wonders of the concert hall. The little boy didn't stay where he was at all, did he? Got up. Went through this door called No Admittance. He didn't know that. He couldn't read. House lights dimmed. The concert was about to begin. True story. Mother returned to her seat, discovered, Oh, he's gone. Suddenly the curtains parted. Spotlight focused on the impressive Steinway piano in the middle of the stage. In horror, what did she see? That's her little boy sitting at the piano, playing Twinkle Twinkle. <laughs> Flip me. I can't even play that. I'm lucky if I can do chopsticks. At that moment, Padoweski, the great piano master, made, makes his entrance, quickly moves to the piano, and seemed to whisper in the boy's ear. What he actually said was, don't quit, keep playing. Leaning over, Padoweski reached down with his left hand, began to fill in the bass part. Soon his right arm reached around to the other side. I'm not technical with these things, but he added a running obligato. There you go. Together, the old master and the young novice transformed a frightening situation into a wonderfully creative experience. The audience were mesmerized. Do you know what? I think that's the way it is with the Holy Spirit. I really do. What we can accomplish on our own is hardly worth noting. We can try our best, but the results aren't exactly graceful flowing music. But with the hand of the master at work, blinking like our life's work can be beautiful. I believe the people in Risca can come to know Jesus. I really do believe that the most hard-hearted person in this town of ours that we love and that we pray for can come to know Jesus. But how will they come if we don't get out there? How will they hear the message if we don't speak up? He's whispering to us tonight, don't quit, keep playing church playing. I pray that we feel his loving arms around us, that we know his strong hands are playing the concert of our lives. We're not alone in this. Let me take you to the last verse of this lovely little passage, because it tells us one more thing, and that is that he motivates us. Look closely at verse 23. If you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, this, this verse causes a lot of controversy. People are like, my gosh, you can forgive sins? Yes, I can. I am powerful. Well, actually, is that true? Is that what it's saying? Because back in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus says, no one can forgive sins but God alone. And the way I understand this verse, context is everything. What it's saying, I think, is this. God doesn't forgive people's sins because I do. Oh, Mark forgave them, so <laughs> I'll forgive them. No, 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 no. Nor does he withhold forgiveness, because I do. Well, I can't forgive them. Mark's not happy with them. No, no. I think this is on about 
the context of evangelism. Those who proclaim the gospel are in effect forgiving or not forgiving sins, depending on whether those hearing accept or reject Jesus. If you and I go out into the streets, and I'm not going to get a megaphone and stand in the park, it's not effective. We have to find creative ways of sharing the gospel. And certainly having a cup of coffee in the coffee mill with one of my friends or something, that's a great way to do it. There are loads of other ways. As a guy, I'm going to invite friends to come and join me at the men's breakfast. I'm certainly, I've already invited three people to come to John Archer evening. Because I understand that if I tell people about his forgiveness, I'm extending that forgiveness to them. If they respond, well, hallelujah, they are forgiven, aren't they? Because they come to know Jesus. But if I don't tell them, well, I'm not extending forgiveness to them. And their sins won't be forgiven. I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to glory knowing that somebody's chasing after my tail, going, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Jesus, we've seen, accepts. He commissions, he equips, and he motivates. And the motivation is that the world is desperately in need of the message that you and I've got. If we don't share this message with those in this community, then some will never hear that they can be set free. Not on my watch. Some will never know the joy of salvation. Not on my watch. Some will never know of the Spirit's strength in difficult times. Not on my watch. If we don't tell people that we come into contact with the good news about Jesus, then we're not fulfilling what Mariah Baptist Church is about. Now, there's a lot more that needs to be said about all of this, and no doubt over the coming weeks and months we will. But if you want to understand my heart and where I'm coming from and why I'm doing things like the John Archer evening, and why I keep on with the men's breakfast, and why I want to do the holiday club, and why we're just doing more and more things like that, a messy church, is because I'm trying to reach people by all means possible with the good news of Jesus. In a few weeks' time, we will launch a brand new children's and young people's ministry in this church called 19 Down. Why? Because we're just trying to be effective again, as we have been for years. Look at the history of this church in reaching young people with the good news of Jesus. It's been incredible. We've hardly got any young people now. Praise God for those that Catherine and Tim have been working with who've gone away to university. Jared's coming back, is to be baptized on Easter Day. What a wonderful thing. But I want 30 baptisms. I want 50 baptisms. Is that wrong with me? I don't think so. I want to see this place full. Do you believe that can happen? I want to see it. I think there are four things that we need to do, friends. Because I want to give my life to reaching the lost. The day you interviewed me to become pastor of this church, I shared with you that that is my aim. I'll teach the Bible all you like. I love teaching the Bible. Love it. But my heart is to reach the lost. 
So the four things I want to finish with that I think we need to do. Number one, we need to ask God's forgiveness. As a church, as individuals, we need to admit that our evangelistic values have slipped. And I think it's the right place to start. I haven't personally led somebody to Christ for over three years. That does my head in. That does my head in. And if I ask some of you when's the last time you led a person to Christ, you'd add a zero to that, won't you? The reality is we need to ask God's forgiveness. And we need to be spiritually authentic in all of this. I think one of the things I will not apologize for in the life of this church is the increased encouragement to prayer. I, I think sometimes we don't think to share Jesus with others because we're not walking with him ourselves. And I want to encourage you, get right with God. Seek his face in prayer. If there's opportunities for corporate prayer, if you can join a connect group, if you can come along to some of the 24-7 prayer initiatives that Viv and Kath and Tim are organizing, come. Let's pray. Let's admit that we failed, ask God's forgiveness, and let's pray. And, and let's, let's pray for opportunities. One of the things I learned when I was leading youth camps was that if I just did blanket prayers, very little happened. But when I started naming kids before the throne of grace, they got saved. When's the last time you prayed for somebody by name to encounter Jesus? You're probably thinking I'm nuts now, aren't you? I've seen it work. Are you driven onto your knees to pray for an unbelieving spouse, an unbelieving child, your neighbor, your work colleague? Colossians 4, verses 2 and 3. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Fourth thing, follow God's promptings. I think God creates opportunities for us. I don't think, you know, a good surfer doesn't make waves. A good surfer finds the wave and rides it. Where are the waves of God's spirit in Risco at the moment? Because I want to discern them, and I want to get on them, and I want to ride them. That's what I want to do. It's not about being clever and having nice programs and clever initiatives. We just need to get on board with what God's doing. Again, Colossians 4. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every, every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So my sister has been on at me for a while now about what is it that just keeps me going and sustains me with the death of my parents. So again, I've been witnessing to her, gently sharing Jesus with her. John Archer's coming, she's coming. Praise God. She'll come and she'll sit by me. I wanted to have a great evening. I wanted to hear a good guy sharing his testimony. But I think God has been prompting her. I think God's doing a work in her life. We need to get back on task. We need to own the mission 
that we've been given. That's why I'm thrilled to have John Archer coming. You know, look, I just want to encourage you. Who are you going to invite? Who are you going to invite to come and hear John? It's not going to be cringy. It's going to be a great evening. Great food. Done a great deal with Ben. You know, I just think it's a wonderful opportunity. Ten little Christians standing in a line. One disliked the preacher, then there were nine. Nine little Christians stayed up very late. One slept in on Sunday, then there were eight. Eight little Christians on their way into heaven. One took his own road, then there were seven. Seven little Christians chirping like some chicks. One disliked the song leader, then there were six. Six little Christians seemed very much alive, but one lost his interest, then there were five. Five little Christians pulling for heaven's shore, but one stopped to rest, then there were four. Four little Christians, busy as a bee, one got her feelings hurt, then there were three. Three little Christians knew not what to do, one couldn't forgive another, then there were two. Two little Christians, our rhyme is nearly done, quarreled over petty stuff. Then there was only one. One little Christian can't do much, tis true. Asked his friend to Bible study. Then there were two. Two earnest Christians, each one one more. That doubled the number, then there were four. Four sincere Christians worked early and worked late, each one another, then there were eight. Eight splendid Christians, if they doubled as before, in just a few short weeks we'd have 1,024. Who will you talk to this week about Jesus? As Pastor Tim said this morning, who is Jesus to you?